Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So, this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised this podcast episode contains the names of people who have died. It's just before 10 on the night of Sunday the 15th of July, 1906. Brother and sister Tim and Mary O'Keefe have spent the evening at church at Wardell on the New South Wales north coast. Now he's driving a horse buggy back north to the O'Keefe farmhouse at German Creek. The O'Keefes, they're pioneers in this part of the world. For more than 30 years, Tim and Mary's parents, Daniel and Margaret, have lived and worked at German Creek midway between Wardell and Ballina, half a mile from the Richmond River and five miles from the sea. The old couple have raised six children who are now all adults. And only Tim and Mary still live at the farmhouse. While the O'Keefe homestead at German Creek's No Castle, it's pretty comfortable. They have five rooms with a kitchen at the back. From the veranda, the O'Keefe's can survey their little kingdom. A scrap of garden, small clumps of banana trees and a sea of sugarcane fields from which they make their modest living. Clomping along in their buggy up the bush-enclosed laneway that leads to the farmhouse all seems well in the world to Tim and Mary. Arriving at their property, she helps him unyoke the horse. Then Mary goes into the house to bed while Tim takes the buggy into the shed. While he's about this, he's startled by a figure from the darkness. Ah, it's only Jack Brown. Tim O'Keefe knows this young fellow well. Jack Brown has worked for his family for most of the past five years until they parted ways a few months back. Jack's a good kid, if a little odd. Now Jack says to Tim, It's a nice time of night, you're coming home. Tim replies, Hello, where did you spring from? Jack says, I just came for a stroll. 
Turning to tend to the buggy, Tim asks, Is Paddy Gillick in the house? Tim's talking about the O'Keefe's labourer, who lives in a cottage on the property. Jack replies, Yes, he's in bed. And then, young Jack Brown hits Tim in the head with an axe. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part one of the two-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Deadwood Dick Murders. Violent video games cause violent crime. It's an argument we hear pretty often. And before violent video games, it was violent horror movies. Prior to that, moral guardians warned that the anarchic energy of rock and roll was unhinging young male minds. Preceding that, it was gruesome comic books that were turning respectable youths into bloodthirsty thugs. Before that, cowboy and gangster talkies. Even earlier than that, the Australian bushranger movies of our earliest silent feature film industry were actually banned for fear they'd incite imitators. Yet, even before the pictures moved, a fictional figure was said to be the scourge of society. He was a rogue known to all as Deadwood Dick. In Australia, for about 50 years from the early 1890s, Deadwood Dick would be blamed for countless crimes committed by his young fans. Most crimes were relatively minor, but Deadwood Dick would also feature in three cases in which 13 people were murdered by five killers. One of these is well known, though the Deadwood Dick angle has seldom been raised. The other two, while headline-grabbing back in the day, are completely forgotten now. Created by American author Edward Wheeler, Deadwood Dick made his dastardly debut in 1877 in an illustrated dime novel called Deadwood Dick, The Prince of the Road, the book also going by the title The Black Rider of the Black Hills. The character was a cocky young outlaw who roamed the same Dakota territory as real-life legends like Buffalo Bill, Calamity Jane and Wild Bill Hickok, as popularised most recently in the TV series Deadwood. Over the next two decades, there'd be dozens of Deadwood Dick books, churned out first by Edward Wheeler and then, after he died, by a succession of ghostwriters. The character became so popular that many people believed he was a real person, and indeed, numerous American frontiersmen would claim they were he. In terms of pop culture franchises, Deadwood Dick was the first gritty superhero with a double identity who appeared in a series of stories. He was the Black Rider half a century before The Dark Knight. If you think that might be drawing a long bow, consider how Deadwood Dick was introduced in that first book. Quote, He was a youth of an age somewhere between 16 and 20, trim and compactly built, with a preponderance of muscular development and animal spirits, broad and deep of chest, with square iron-cast shoulders, limbs small yet like bars of steel, and with a grace of position in the saddle rarely equalled. He made a fine picture for an artist's brush or a poet's pen. Only one thing marred the captivating beauty of the picture. His form was clothed in a tight-fitting habit of buckskin, which was coloured a jetty black, and presented a striking contrast to anything one sees as a garment in the far wild west. And this was not all either. A broad black hat was slouched down over his eyes. He wore a thick black veil over the upper portion of his face, through the eye holes of which there gleamed a pair of orbs of piercing intensity, 
and his hands, large and knotted, were hidden in a pair of kid gloves of light colour. The black rider, he might have been justly termed, for his thoroughbred steed was as black as coal, but we have not seen fit to call him such. His name is Deadwood Dick, and let that suffice for the present. Seriously, all it's missing is a bat signal. And as for his attitude, immediately after this description, Deadwood Dick sees his own wanted poster, which offers $500 for his capture. Quote, Slowly, over and over, Deadwood Dick, outlaw, road agent and outcast, read the notice, and then a wild, sardonic laugh burst from beneath his mask. A terrible, blood-curdling laugh that made even the powerful animal he bestrode start and prick up its ears. Joker-style laugh aside, Deadwood Dick was by the fourth book reformed and became an anti-hero on the side of the right. Think Robin Hood of the Wild West. On the other side of the world, in the Australian colonies, as literacy increased among working and middle-class boys and men, Deadwood Dick became immensely popular. Australian boys and young men loved his attitude and adventures. This was hardly surprising because Deadwood Dick was like American kin to Ned Kelly and other bushrangers who were widely perceived as heroic figures. In the United States, Deadwood Dick and other pulp novel anti-heroes had raised the ire of moral guardians. The most prominent of these was Anthony Comstock, a crusading and punitive Puritan who was US Postmaster General and founder of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. Anthony Comstock in 1883 wrote a book called Traps for the Young, and this volume outlined all the dangers posed to children by Satan in the Industrial Age. One of the greatest perils, of course, was Deadwood Dick-style literature, which Comstock considered to be eggs from which villainy was hatched. He wrote, quote, These stories breed vulgarity, profanity, loose ideas of life, impurity of thought and deed. They render the imagination unclean, destroy domestic peace, desolate homes, cheapen women's virtue, and make foul-mouthed bullies, cheats, vagabonds, thieves, desperados, and libertines. They disparage honest toil and make real life a drudge and burden. What young man will serve an apprenticeship, working early and late, if his mind is filled with the idea that sudden wealth may be acquired by following the hero of the story? Half a world away, Australia's moral guardians had identical ideas about Deadwood Dick and what was called Deadwood Dick-style literature. There was no doubt these books were hugely popular, but did they actually turn male minds to evil deeds? As we'll see, politicians, priests, police and pundits believe so, and for more than 50 years they'd claim a direct link between Deadwood Dick and serious crime and antisocial behaviour. The earliest reference I've found to Deadwood Dick in Australia was in a November 1891 issue of the Bendigo Advertiser, in which a bookshop informed readers it was discounting famous Deadwood Dick stories to a penny apiece. That the character was already by then established and indeed famous down under was confirmed by the next reference I found, this one a theatrical ad in the Sydney Morning Herald in January 1892. This notice said that the concluding act in a minstrel show at George Street's Alhambra Musical Hall was to be a, quote, 
diabolical and bloodthirsty extravaganza entitled Life in the Far West. The hero was Deadwood Dick, described as a, quote, terror to the red man, and he was played by actor Alf James. The third reference, and the first to voice concern about the moral effects of Deadwood Dick, came the following month in a Sydney Daily Telegraph report on a meeting of the Women's Literary Club of New South Wales in which cheap literature had been discussed. Quote, The Deadwood Dick series that maketh glad the hearts of various boys of our acquaintance came in for some severe comments. After that, Deadwood Dick was the subject of frequent such commentary. In December 1894, the Daily Telegraph ran an article entitled The Novel of the Future, in which Deadwood Dick was part of their assessment of changing tastes. Quote, The increase of educational facilities has brought the art of reading within the reach of almost every boy, and an immense percentage of boys conceive an early and absorbing taste for impossible heroism as exemplified in the goings-on of Deadwood Dick and all his swaggering juvenile tribe. The article said boys wanted, quote, strong theatrical sensations and effects, and if he cannot get these in well-written pages, will seek them among the luridly illustrated trash of the exceedingly cheap bookstalls. The Sydney Morning Herald in November 1895 ran an article entitled, What Boys Read Now? The piece asked whether charming classic storytelling stood any chance next to such filth. The best that could be said of Deadwood Dick literature was that it was, quote, vulgar rubbish of the trashiest kind, in which all the men talk like sneak thieves and the women like bells of Whitechapel, and even virtue becomes mean when its aims and motives are expressed in language like this. Alongside such hand-wringing commentary, there were plenty of stories about actual misbehaviour supposedly resulting directly from reading Deadwood Dicks or Deadwood Dick-style literature. The Quiz and Lantern newspaper of South Australia in December 1892 ran an article about a 15-year-old schoolboy who'd been caught wagging for a fortnight so he could read, quote, hair-raising yarns of the Deadwood Dick stamp. The idea of Deadwood Dick leading to criminality was so common that when two Melbourne septuagenarians were caught as burglars, the Sydney Mail and New South Wales Advertiser in March 1893 joked, Perhaps it was reading bad books of the Deadwood Dick pattern or keeping low company that prompted them to enter houses instead of coffins. There was no joking in April 1893 when the Sydney Evening News told of a 14-year-old Redfern boy who'd stolen 47 pounds from his father. Then, with a mate, he'd gone to a gunsmith's and bought two shotguns, a huge amount of ammunition, some axes and a tent. The boys ran away and camped at Lithgow. There, one of them accidentally shot himself, resulting in his leg being amputated above the knee. Editorialising, Sydney's The Evening News remarked, quote, Literature of the Deadwood Dick type occasionally impels juveniles to enter upon extraordinary expeditions. A columnist for the Illustrated Sydney News demanded the New South Wales colonial government protect youth and thus society from such influences. Quote, there is more harm wrought by these Deadwood Dick books and others of the same type than can be calculated. The writer continued claiming, quote, the effects generally are of an insidious character which 
if traced, however, will be found to lead to pushism, that is to say, larrikinism of the most depraved kind. The columnist darkly insinuated that if the boy hadn't shot himself, the duo would probably have gone on to bushranging depredations. In March 1895, Sydney teens formed a gang to steal tobacco and newspapers cited Deadwood Dick as the cause with the Maclay Argus musing, quote, It would be interesting to know how many criminals were first created by this rubbishy trash. It would have been because in these many newspaper articles, writers simply stated that the boys and youths in trouble had been led astray by a fondness for Deadwood Dick-style literature without providing any evidence. Occasionally, though, the link between Deadwood Dick and crime was more demonstrable, in that the offenders had consciously styled themselves on the character or books were found among their possessions. In June 1897, two teenage boys were charged with breaking, entering and stealing a revolver in Broken Hill, telling police they'd wanted to go bushranging. The older lad said he wanted to be known as Captain Dick, and one of the boy's stepfathers said his son's corruption was the result of, quote, excessive indulgence in light literature of the Deadwood Dick and Buffalo Bill description. When a young man went to court for stealing horses in Western Australia in September 1903, the Bunbury Herald newspaper's headline read, quote, The horse seizure case, a young man sent to jail, Deadwood Dick and a revolver. The article included this, quote, the nature of the Deadwood Dick type of blood and thunder books, as represented by the parts found in Stuart's pocketbook, is such as to make those given to moralise and wish that in the interests of the rising generation, such deadly matter could be suppressed. The gaudy coloured prints are calculated to attract the weak-minded, and their influence may be more far-reaching than many would think. But as the occasional newspaper editorial and letter writer would point out, this type of literature was reaching hundreds of thousands of boys and men, and very few of them were criminals. It wasn't like Australia hadn't had crooks before the rise of Deadwood Dick. The country had been founded as a prison for convicts. Australia's most famous criminal, Ned Kelly, rode out and started on his wayward way long before his American equivalent reached bookshelves on our shores. And the same went for the hundreds of Australian highwaymen who came before Ned Kelly. Yet, the Deadwood Dick alarm went on year after year. Like the stepfather we already heard from, Deadwood Dick was often exploited by parents and by defence lawyers who tried to argue that their sons or clients had been unduly influenced. In August 1898, two Sydney schoolboys, reported to be of very respectable appearance, were brought before the court for stealing. The Daily Telegraph reported, quote, Mr. J.W. Abigail, who appeared for the defence, said this was not an ordinary case of felony. The lads had been reading Deadwood Dick. Seven years later, in July 1905, the Catholic press ran a headline that read The Influence of Penny Dreadfuls. This was above an article about another court case. Quote, Two youths were recently before a Victorian court charged with stealing gold from the underground workings of a mine. It was pleaded for one of the defendants that he had been led astray by reading books of the Deadwood Dick type. This was not the first time such a plea had been put forward, and unquestionably such books have a very dangerous effect on immature minds. Some of these cheap publications, which are designed for the amusement of boys and persons but partially educated, glorify crime and make all their heroes lawbreakers. 
Lads reading about gentlemanly brigands, polished pirates and chivalrous highwaymen find it difficult to believe there is any crime in taking other people's property. As we've heard so far, most of these so-called Deadwood Dick crimes were relatively petty, non-violent and committed by more or less respectable white boys. Then, in July 1900 came a massacre that mortified Australia. Jimmy Governor was a 25-year-old Aboriginal man from the Talbrigo River area of western New South Wales, and we've heard something of his story before in the Tracker Riley episodes. Jimmy had worked as a police tracker, woodcutter and wool roller in the mid to late 1890s. In mid-1898, he got involved with a white woman named Ethel Page, and they married at the end of that year and had a baby son early in 1899. Jimmy went to work doing fencing for a white family, the Morbys, at Breelong around April 1900, with Ethel employed as a housekeeper. Jimmy's brother Joe was camping with them on the property, as was their friend Jack Underwood. At night, these men discussed riding out to become bushrangers, but this appeared to be just campfire yarning. Relations with the Morbys became strained when Ethel was subject to racist taunts by Mrs Sarah Morby, who, like most of Australian society at the time, didn't approve of interracial marriage. On the night of the 20th of July 1900, Jimmy went with Jack Underwood to confront Mrs Morby about what she'd been saying. His boss's wife was with Helen Kurz, Breelong schoolteacher who boarded with the family. As Jimmy would tell the court five months later, as reported by the Daily Telegraph on the 24th of November, quote, I said to my wife, we will go up and see Mrs Morby about these words she has been saying about us. I will make her mind what she is talking about. I will pull her to court if she doesn't watch herself. I went up to the house and I said, are you in Mrs Morby? I said, did you tell my wife that a white woman who married a black fellow ought to be shot? Did you ask my wife? As the Daily Telegraph noted, here followed several questions of an unpublishable nature. Their coverage of Jimmy's testimony continued, quote, Mrs. Morby then wheeled round and laughed at me with a sneering laugh, and before I had the words out of my mouth, I struck Mrs. Morby on the head with a nulla nulla. Miss Kerr said, Pooh, you black rubbish, you want shooting for marrying a white woman. With that, I hit her with my hand on the jaw and knocked her down. Then, I lost my temper and got angry and everything. I did not know anything after that. Jimmy and Jack savagely battered Mrs Morby and Miss Kerrs. They also attacked three of the Morby's children, Hilda, Percy and Grace, and John Morby's niece, Elsie Clark. Miss Kerrs, Hilda and Percy died that night. Grace would die a few days later, while Mrs Morby lingered for three months before succumbing to her injuries. Elsie Clark would recover, though she was made deaf by her wounds. Following what became known as the Breelong Massacre, Jimmy and Jack rode out with Joe. Jack Underwood was captured quickly, tried for the murder of Percy Morby, found guilty and sentenced to death. But the Governor brothers remained fugitives. Three days after Breelong, they killed a man named Alexander McKay. Two days after that, a woman named Elizabeth O'Brien and her infant son. And on the 26th of July, they claimed their final victim, Kieran Fitzpatrick. Eight people were dead, another woman lay dying, and terror took hold across vast areas of outback New South Wales. 
A massive manhunt was mounted involving more than 100 police, a dozen black trackers and local vigilante posses comprised of graziers and hunters. Every development was breathlessly reported in the newspapers of the day. And Jimmy Governor's story is relatively well known today, in part due to Thomas Keneally's 1972 fictionalised account, The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, later made into a film of the same name. Jimmy Governor's motives have been well documented and, though in no way excusing his brutal murder spree, it's generally accepted he'd snapped at Breelong after enduring a lifetime of racism and then rode out to avenge perceived slights because he had nothing left to lose. What is forgotten, though, is that in the immediate aftermath of the crimes, the popular press blamed Deadwood Dick. Here's a Daily Telegraph correspondent trying to sort the facts from the fiction on the 6th of August 1900, more than two months before Jimmy Governor was caught. Quote, Although, as I have indicated, there is a tremendous amount of information going about which one must unconditionally reject, there is still a mass of news, which, if I had a little more time, I could tell you, and which is intrinsically interesting. But the correspondent had time to relate this. Quote, Some of my acquaintances have placed in my possession of the facts with regard to Jimmy Governor, which serve to show that his recent multitudinous murders have been the result of a close and diligent study of pernicious reading of the Deadwood Dick species. It appears that he simply devoured anything of the kind that he could acquire, and the life of Ned Kelly was read and reread by him until he knew it by heart. This Daily Telegraph article was ripped off, reworded and reprinted all over Australia. The ironic flip side of this was that while Jimmy Governor was still a fugitive, eight boys from Moolamaloo in Sydney, all said to be Deadwood Dick fans, armed themselves with revolvers and ran off from home to help bring the Aboriginal fugitives to justice. Jimmy and Joe Governor would remain on the run for more than three months. Their luck ran out on the 13th of October when Jimmy was shot in the mouth by a hunter. Though wounded, he remained at large for another two weeks before being caught on the 27th of October. Here's what the evening news had to say on the 29th of October 1900 with Jimmy now in custody and with Joe still on the run. Quote, The little native camp at Breelong seems to have owed at least part of its demoralisation to reading Deadwood Dick tales of highwaymen and bushrangers. There are plenty of instances on record of white boys being lured into crime or foolish adventure by the study of what is called pernicious literature, but we think we are correct in saying that this is the first example of a half-wild, semi-black fellow taking to the bush after a course of the sort of books which generally do no worse than stir the ordinarily pacific errand boy to embezzle his master's change, so that he may buy a cheap and ineffective pistol with which to sally forth as a young Ned Kelly, a course of proceeding which usually ends in an unfortunate meeting with a suburban policeman and the appearance of a tearful and humble desperado in the police court. But the governors, when they had read romances of crime, improved on the lessons therein taught and showed a natural aptitude for villainy and murder, which should put to shame the imaginative powers of the authors of Penny Dreadfuls. Joe Governor was shot dead by a grazier on the 31st of October 1900. By then Jimmy had made an initial confession to the Sydney Morning Herald, which at the end of October and start of November was printed all over Australia. In this interview Jimmy owned up to everything, yet he also said, quote, 
I had never read any of Deadwood Dick's novels or any books about bushranging till we came out that night. That wasn't to say he didn't read such literature afterwards, yet Jimmy had no reason to lie and at the very least the Breelong Massacre hadn't been the result of reading Deadwood Dick's. What's also telling is that the supposed Deadwood Dick motive wasn't raised by the prosecution or defence at Jimmy Governor's trial for the murder of Helen Curse, the trial that sent him to the gallows in Darlinghurst Jail on the 18th of January 1901. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Just before we continue with this episode of Forgotten Australia, I'd like to invite you to check out my other podcast, Australia On This Day. It's pretty much a daily mini version of Forgotten Australia, with shows usually running 10 to 20 minutes. I'm covering everything, including hardy explorers, big brain scientists, war heroes, sporting champions, female pioneers, and Aboriginal legends. There's also, of course, a healthy dollop of true crime, with recent episodes about a vicious razor gangster, a cold-blooded car bomber, and a notorious kidnapping. I'd love you to give Australia on this day a listen, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Alright, on with the curious case of the Deadwood Dick murders. After the Breelong Massacre, Deadwood Dick would, at least in the popular press, continue to inspire petty crimes for the next five years. Then, in February 1906, just a mile from where Jimmy Governor had been hanged in Darlinghurst Jail, Deadwood Dick raised his dastardly head again in another sensational murder case. Forty-year-old Mrs Mercy Gregory, whose husband ran a hotel in Coolgardie, Western Australia, came to Sydney in mid-January for a health holiday. She took a third-floor room at the Royal Hotel, a prominent establishment in George Street, located where the flagship Dimmick's bookstore now stands. Towards the end of the month, Mrs Gregory wrote to a friend back home saying some of her jewellery had gone missing and she believed it was being pilfered from her room when she was out. On the night of the 31st of January, Mrs Gregory went out and came back to her room around 10 o'clock. At 2 o'clock the next morning, she awoke having heard a noise. Mrs Gregory struck a match, lit a candle and saw a dark figure looming up from the floor. She screamed and a blade flashed as her assailant slashed and slashed again. The hotel's night porter heard her cries and rushed upstairs to find Mrs Gregory's door open. She was sitting on the floor, head slumped on the bed, dying in pools of blood. The porter rushed to tell the hotel manager, who called the police, who summoned the government medical officer. By the time the authorities arrived, Mrs Gregory was dead. The government medical officer's examinations would show that she died as the result of a savage stabbing frenzy that had inflicted nine wounds. 
including two that individually would have proved fatal. The nature of the stabbing, along with the fact that the killer had left his boots and hat beneath the bed, indicated he'd acted out of panic. Police believed he'd hidden in the room intending to rob Mrs Gregory while she slept. When she'd surprised him, he'd killed her and then fled without taking her jewellery or her cash. But how had he gotten out of the hotel? Police didn't know. No one had seen anyone run from the building and the window of Mrs Gregory's room opened onto a 50-foot drop. Later that day, a maidservant working at the Royal Hotel identified the boots. She said they belonged to the boy who, until recently, had worked as the hotel's lift operator. And she said that this boy had always been reading Deadwood Dick Tales. The boy was Thomas Quinlan, age 15. Police raided the Woolamaloo boarding house in which he lived, finding him in bed listening to his younger brother read a newspaper account of Mrs Gregory's murder. Thomas Quinlan initially denied the crime, but he was at a loss to explain why two of his fingers were cut to the bone, why there was a bloodstained shirt beneath his bed, or how scarf pins belonging to Mrs Gregory had wound up in his possession. And like some ghastly Cinderella story, his feet also perfectly fit the small boots that had been found beneath the bed in the dead woman's room. In the face of all of this, Thomas Quinlan fessed up saying, quote, there is no use in further denying it. Thomas Quinlan's police file can be found in the New South Wales State Archives. At the time of his arrest, he stood just a little under 5'2 and weighed only 119 pounds. The attached photos show a frowning boy who looks even younger than his 15 years. Thomas Quinlan was born in September 1890 in Queensland. He never knew his father and his mother remarried, though her new husband died, leaving her to fend for half a dozen children in Brewarrina in northwestern New South Wales. One son went to study for the priesthood, two daughters were placed in an orphanage, and Mrs Quinlan and three sons, including Thomas, came to Sydney in the early 1900s. Thomas's mother left him in Sydney around the start of 1905, when he was still 13. But she didn't just abandon Thomas, she also abandoned a younger son that he now had to take care of and support. At first, Thomas worked as a messenger at the telegraph office. When he left with a glowing reference, he got a job at the Royal Hotel. As Thomas would testify, his wage and tips there amounted to about 15 shillings a week, and that all went paying for his room, paying for the room in which his brother lived, supporting his sisters in the orphanage, and paying off debts his mother had accumulated with a moneylender. It's hard to imagine the stress this 15-year-old boy was under. But it got worse at the start of 1906 when the New South Wales government passed a new Liquor Act, under which Thomas was too young to deliver drinks to guest rooms. So the hotel manager let him go. To earn a living and to escape his life, Thomas decided to go to sea. On the 24th of January, he went to see a shipping company and was told he could have a job as a steward on a ship leaving for New Zealand. Thomas bought a sheath knife used by sailors and to get some money to see him through, he decided to go back to the Royal Hotel and steal Mrs Gregory's jewellery. As police had theorised, he hid in her room and killed her when she woke up and started screaming. 
No news headline hinted that Thomas Quinlan was an abandoned child who'd committed murder during the commission of a robbery. Instead, Australian newspaper readers were treated to headlines like this. The Tasmanian News. The Sydney Murder Case. Deadwood Dick Literature. Wagga Wagga Advertiser. Accused before the court, quite unconcerned, reader of Deadwood Dick Literature. Kalgoorlie Minor. A foul murder. Mrs J.A.F. Gregory the victim. 15 years old boy, the murderer. Effects of Deadwood Dick Literature. Callous and cold-blooded criminal. Fremantle's Evening Mail. Boy's Dark Deed. Murders Kulgardiite. Result of reading Deadwood Dick. One of the rare dissenting voices was found in the Sydney Sportsman on the 7th of February. Its headline cleverly mocked detectives, quote, Deadwood Dicks, Peelers pose as literary authorities. The piece began, quote, The police, who have drawn anything but glory upon themselves in connection with the Royal Hotel murder, have brought down more ridicule by evolving a theory of the motive for the crime. Those sapient sapheads opine that it was a strong course of Deadwood Dick literature that urged the lad on to emulate the heroes of who he had read. The Sydney sportsman argued cogently that the facts showed the accused had killed Mrs Gregory to avoid being caught while committing a robbery intended to fund him going to sea. Further, and even more rarely, the article also pointed out that, quote, the tone of a Deadwood Dick yarn is moral, just as the tone of a howling melodrama is moral, the villain being always run to earth by the avenging hero. And that was true. If Thomas Quinlan was really influenced by Deadwood Dick, he wouldn't be committing any sort of crime in the first place. Instead, he'd be out catching villains. That didn't stop newspapers seeking and getting Deadwood Dick comments from those who'd known Thomas Quinlan. The Royal Hotel's licensee, Thomas Byrne, who'd fired the boy, was quoted as saying he'd never really taken to Thomas, even though he'd employed him, because he was fond of Deadwood Dick literature. The Daily Telegraph sought out a boarding house proprietress who'd employed Thomas Quinlan as a helper. She remembered him as being very well behaved and very alert, his only fault being reading Deadwood Dick. The Australian star interviewed an unnamed city businessman who said he'd known Mrs Quinlan and known her sons. The reporter asked, How do you account then for his going astray so radically? The businessman replied, Deadwood Dicks. The reporter pressed, You mean that he's been reading too many of those sensational books? Precisely. I am sure of it. Absolutely. Positively certain. The reporter said, What makes you think so? The man replied, Oh, the circumstance of the case generally and my knowledge of the lad. Did you ever expect to see him develop such murderous tendencies? The businessman answered, Oh no, but I think now, in fact, I am certain that it's all through reading those Deadwood Dick books. As I have already told you, Mrs Quinlan, when she left Sydney, did so thinking she could leave Tommy behind with absolute safety. The Sunday Times actually went to the trouble of identifying the two Deadwood Dick-type books found in Thomas Quinlan's possession. One of these sinister tomes was called The Adventures of Captain Pamphile. The newspaper observed, quote, The outer cover has a weird picture of a person sharpening a huge knife or dagger. The Sunday Times journalist was either not much of a reader or being willfully ignorant. 
That's because The Adventures of Captain Pam Feel was an 1839 novel by Alexander Dumas. The book was about a seagoing adventurer liberating animals, and it was meant to convey an anti-slavery message to children. So maybe Thomas Quinlan, who until recently had been working probably 70 hours a week for 15 shillings that was used to support everybody else, could relate to this novel. As for the other Deadwood Dick book he'd been reading, this one was called Exploits of Brigadier Gerard. The Sunday Times scribe again judged the book by its cover, which had, quote, a picture of the hero with a sword in one hand and a candle in the other. Exploits of Brigadier Gerard was Arthur Conan Doyle's 1896 collection of eight satirical stories about a vain French army officer during the Napoleonic Wars. Poorly educated, work-to-the-bone 15-year-old Thomas Quinlan had, in his limited leisure time, been reading one book by the creator of The Three Musketeers and another by the man who gave the world Sherlock Holmes. Both of these literary giants had, for the sake of journalistic sensation, been lumped with the Penny Dreadfuls and blamed for cold-blooded murder. Thomas Quinlan was tried in Sydney's Central Criminal Court, where his lawyer entered a plea for him of insanity. What he didn't argue was that his client's mind had been corrupted by Deadwood Dick. Neither did the prosecution, because really, how could it have? Here's how the matter was raised. Prosecutor, you have read books? Thomas Quinlan, I wasn't reading Deadwood Dick's. Prosecutor, you have read books and have these not told you that it is wrong to commit murders? Thomas Quinlan, yes. And that was it. What the court did here was how this kid had been abandoned by his mother and made to support her and his siblings. The court also heard from Thomas's mother, who testified that she'd accidentally given him an overdose of chlorodyne when he was just three years old. Chlorodyne was a powerful medication whose ingredients were opium, cannabis and chloroform. Since then, Mrs Quinlan said, Thomas had been mentally afflicted and, she testified, he was prone to fits. As for his state of mind in the lead-up to the crime, Thomas told the court that he'd wanted to go to sea because there was too much responsibility on shore. He said he had to pay for his brother and clothe himself and he had to pay money to go and see his sisters. He also had to go and see the other brother who was in the monastery at Randwick. Going to sea was to escape all of these troubles. None of that was an excuse for murder. What would see him acquitted, though, was a verdict that found he was insane. During the trial, doctors offered their medical opinion that Thomas Quinlan was morally insane. Today, what we'd call a sociopath. To the gentlemen of the press, this was evident during the proceedings, with every reporter saying that Thomas was eerily calm and showed no remorse. Here's how Thomas Quinlan, who said he'd just had the knife in his pocket as a matter of course, testified about the moment he killed Mrs. Gregory. Quote, She must have seen me and she was just rising from the bed when I rushed and struck her with the knife. Then I struck her again and she got out of the bed altogether. She kept rushing at me all the time and I kept hitting out with the knife. She fell down near the bed and I threw the knife away. The prosecutor asked, She did not touch you at all? You hit her to stop her screeching? Thomas Quinlan replied, I don't know. 
If I had time to think about it, I'd sooner have been caught than have done that. Sane or insane, Thomas Quinlan's killing of Mrs Gregory was a ghastly act. Yet the physical evidence, testimony of doctors and the accused's own words gave no indication he'd premeditated the murder. The jury took 10 minutes to find Thomas Quinlan guilty, though it recommended mercy on account of his age. The judge sentenced Thomas Quinlan to hang, though this would be commuted to life in prison. As for Deadwood Dick and his ilk, well, he continued in his role as catch-all scapegoat. In June 1906, with Thomas Quinlan beginning what he believed would be life behind bars, the Queenbian Age ran a choice article headlined Effect of Deadwood Dick Literature, above an article about a Melbourne youth who'd lost his mind. Quote, A young man presented at the Ballarat East Court yesterday on a formal charge of insulting behaviour was stated to have lost his mental balance owing to his reading literature of the Deadwood Dick type. His mind had become a blank and he was dull and apathetic and quite oblivious of what was going on around him. This was the opinion of a surgeon employed by the Victorian government who'd observed the poor creature unable to hear, speak or perform the simplest of ablutions. The article continued, quote, When shaken, he merely made a mumbling, gurgling noise. The young man was committed to the Ararat Lunatic Asylum. Just one month later, 1,000 miles northeast of Ararat, early on the night of Sunday, the 15th of July, John Raymond Brown, aka Jack Brown, set out for the O'Keefe family farmhouse at German Creek on the New South Wales north coast. This diminutive boy was wearing the uniform of the Scottish Rifles and he was armed with a bayonet. By morning, three people would be dead and a massive manhunt would be underway for Jack Brown. The newspaper headlines, well, they'd place the blame on you-know-who. But as Jack Brown had been heading out to German Creek, his mind wasn't ticking over with the antics of America's most reviled fictional character. And instead, the dark thoughts he was thinking were more in line with the politics of Australia's most revered federal leaders. Jack Brown was on a mission. He didn't want to be Deadwood Dick. He wanted to be a warrior for white Australia. My name's Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part one of The Deadwood Dick Murders. Part two will be released soon, so make sure you're subscribed to get it as soon as it comes out. In the meantime, you can help Forgotten Australia reach other people by leaving a rating or review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This show was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundangara people. As always, thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.